0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, that song is such a simple declaration that you are our only hope and our steadfast soil that we can stand upon. And while it is so easy to to sing that, it is so um, difficult for us at times to live that out because there are so many other things that lie to us and say that it is um, as trustworthy or more trustworthy than, than you are. Father, just help us to appropriately repent of those idols that we have placed up in our lives saying, this is our sure hope. Lord, help us to turn our eyes once again to you and rest, not in what we do, not in what the world tells us that we can trust in, but in you and you alone. Just be with us now as we look at your word. um, and your name, amen. Well, I would encourage you to turn to the gospel of John chapter 6. We're going to be continuing in our study this morning of John 6. Each week when I set out to study a passage and and, and to bring it um, to you guys, I was was trying to think of the question that's driving the the conversation or driving the story or driving the sermon. And I, I just keep coming back to the same question each and every week. And the question is that I would put forward to you is, well, what are you trusting in? And as I've just kind of considered, like, how can I change that question? How can I put a different spin on it? Or is that actually appropriate? Or am I just reusing some other question from some other text? I keep coming back to the fact that that is actually the question that John is asking the gospel readers. That's the question that's driving the entire book. What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in for your hope and for your salvation? That's why he sat down and wrote this gospel, because he wants to describe for us that the only sure hope that we have, the only thing that we can trust in is, in fact, Jesus. And so as we are journeying through this book as we're looking at all of these various stories that are, uh, that are happening, all of them are given to us so that we can walk out of here every Sunday morning, walk away from every single text, better trusting in the fact that we can trust in Christ. Now, with that, um, I want to add some structure to this morning um, so that you, you can just kind of follow along with where we're going to be. We're going to be in the uh, Gospel of John 6 through um, chapter 6, 30 through, through 40. And here's the structure for us. There's kind of two simple phrases that we're going to uh, latch onto. The first one is this. Our faithfulness is never enough. Our faithfulness is never enough. And the second one. By the grace of God, Jesus' faithfulness is always enough. Now, I want to catch us up on the story if if you're here for the first time or um, I just want to let you know kind of where we have come from. At the beginning of chapter 6, we saw Jesus feed 5,000 people on a mountainside in the wilderness miraculously with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. And obviously, if you were just given a a meal that you could eat as much as you wanted, and there were still leftovers, and then that guy walked away, you wanted to go find him. And so what we saw is that Jesus fed these 5,000 people on a mountainside. He then, well, his disciples then got in a boat. He walked on water to catch up to them. And he crossed the, uh, the Sea of Galilee and went to a new town. And those people who were fed followed him. And what we saw last week is they followed him and they asked him a very simple question. Where did you go and why can't you stay with us? Now Jesus, when he responds to them, asks them, a, well, doesn't really ask him a question. Just kind of gives them a statement. And the statement is, why are you seeking me? Why are you following me? Why did you come here after I fed you? And what he says is, is in John 6:26. He says, "This truly, truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal." Jesus knew they were seeking him not because they thought he was the Son of God, but because their stomachs were filled. Because they went to the absolute best buffet that they could ever go to. I mean, it was the all-you-can-eat golden corral style. They had to, like, unbuckle their belts so that they could, uh, you know, finally, like, release the pressure. They said, I want to always have that food at my disposal. They wanted Jesus to make their life better. They were, ser- they were searching after Jesus, following after Jesus for short-sighted temporal reasons, this is why when he says in this passage, don't work for the food that perishes. I mean, literally, he's going, listen, the food that you just ate is, is, is going to leave your body in a few short days or hours. You are going to be physically hungry once again. They were looking for Jesus to just fill the externals of their life, the outside of their life. They actually weren't searching him for the right reasons. In their own way, they were accomplishing what Jesus warns us in in Mark eight thirty six. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? They were approaching Jesus in this way, saying, Look, if we have you, we can have bread forever. They were searching him somewhat in a like genie in the bottle kind of way, like if we can latch on to this guy, our life forever will be changed and I can finally rest because all of my needs, my temporal needs, my physical needs will be met. Jesus. Looking at them says, listen, you are seeking me for the wrong reasons. What's he say? He goes, listen. After they ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Essentially, what must we do to have you forever? He goes, this is the work of God that you may believe in him whom he has sent. You see, they were approaching Jesus through the means of doing what must we do to have you so that we can have these physical blessings? And Jesus responds to them and says, Listen, you don't approach me through a means of doing, but through a means of believing. Which gets us caught up for our conversation today and for the next section of this passage. As I said, we're going to go through uh, chapter 6, 30 through 40. But I just want to read and talk through this passage as we go on. Here's how they respond to that. You must believe. It goes then what signs do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As is written, he gave them bread to eat. Now, you might go, why are they asking for a sign? I mean, they were just fed the 5,000. I I, want to have some recap. The feeding of the 5,000 was at least a day ago. It could have been longer. Jesus is, is believed now that this conversation is taking place in a synagogue somewhere. These are the religious leaders surrounding Jesus, asking them. And notice the question that they ask. I mean, this question is, is an insult. I, I actually can't believe that they have the audacity to ask this question. What sign do you give us that we can trust you? I mean, Jesus just did an amazing miracle that at least 5,000 people can attest to and say, no, I ate to my fill on the side of a mountain. He produced food from a few loaves and fish, so food out of nothing. And you're now asking for a sign. But notice where their hearts and minds went. Essentially, what they're saying is, how can we trust you more than we can trust Moses? They'd spent their lives trusting Moses. They spent their lives trusting Moses because they read these, these stories for these forefathers and all the amazing things that Moses did and accomplished for the nation of Israel back in the wilderness. And they thought, why are you more trustworthy than Moses? They showed their cards, if you will, to, to Jesus, though he probably, or he not probably, he already knew what, what they were thinking and feeling, but he definitely showed it to us. How are you more trustworthy than Moses. I have a question for you. What are you trusting in? I know that's a, that's a question that drives all of us, but what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in that makes you sleep well at night? What are you trusting in that will bring you joy in life? What are you trusting in for the hope that is in your future? What are you trusting in? You're, you're trusting in something. What is it? Now, you might go, hmm... I want to say I'm trusting in this or that. I want to say I'm trusting in Jesus. What if I asked your spouse what you're trusting in? What if I asked your child? What if I asked your best friend? What if I asked your neighbor? What if I asked your coworker? Recently, I took this personality test. And um, I don't know if you've ever taken a personality test. It's kind of hard. Because at least for me, I took this personality test and I got the results back. And I went, that's not me. I don't struggle with that. I'm not weak in these areas. Then I talked to Amy about it. And she goes, that is absolutely you. You do struggle with that. You are weak in those areas. It's like a mirror to my life that I did not want to live through. What would your spouse or your friend or your child or your coworker or your neighbor say that you're trusting in? That's a hard question because we want to say it's Jesus. But then actually, how do we live? Do we actually live a life that demonstrates that we are trusting in Jesus for our hope? Or do we trust in so many other things? See, these religious leaders, these Jews, were trusting in certain signs. They were trusting in the signs that Moses gave them. That's why they said to Jesus, well, give us a sign so that we can trust in you. But what they were saying is, once you prove that you can make my life easier, then I will trust in you. They were, you know, functionally kind of acting like Gideon. Here, let's lay out some fleece. And once you demonstrate for me enough times that you're trustworthy, then I will actually trust in you. I want to leave this conversation for, for a, a moment and just shift gears slightly. I've been reading through the New Testament recently, um, and uh, one, one of the things that stuck out to me is how often Jesus, or God rather, puts his people in the wilderness to teach them things. It's not even just in the New Testament. It's also also in the Old Testament. God is continually coming to people in the wilderness. It's like he does not know how to come to people in cities. He comes to people in the wilderness. Think through this. Where does Moses meet God? In the wilderness. Where does the nation of Israel meet God? In the wilderness. Where does God come to the nation of Israel and build the tabernacle? In the wilderness. Where was John the Baptist? In the wilderness. Where did he feed the 5,000? In the wilderness. Why is it that God seems to always use the wilderness as the ideal meeting place? I think it's this. All of the distractions of our life are removed. And we are stripped down to the very core of who we are in the wilderness. Now, when you think wilderness, it's probably easy for us to assume that what you're thinking about is some like forest someplace. Or some, you know, there's not going to be running water, or there's not going to be a bathroom, or, oh dear, there's not going to be a Starbucks. But when Jesus in the Bible speaks of wilderness, it speaks of wilderness, desolate places. There is no shade, there is no food, there is no water. It is you against the elements. I don't think many of us have ever been stripped down to that extent before. You against the elements. That's a scary place to be. Recently, as as my girls are getting older, Amy and I are spending more and more time focusing on equipping them for life. It's crazy. I have a junior hire. Yeah. And the conversations that we're having with them is, what must you do to, to be prepared for life, to be equipped for life? What should you focus on? And I'm sure at some point in your life, you had somebody, whether it's a parent or a teacher, maybe it was just the world itself, kind of demonstrate for you, here's what you need for a good life. I mean, why do we tell our kids to make good grades in school? We tell them to make good grades in school so that they can have an opportunity to do the job that they want that's going to set them up for success. And so you should get good grades so that you can be successful. Why do we tell them to pick some educational system? I want to say college, trade school, something like that, where they can be trained to do a certain job so that they can be successful in life. Why do we tell them that they should pick out a good career so that they can be successful in life? Why do we tell them that when they're looking for a spouse that they should find a good spouse so that they can be successful in life? Why should they get a good job so that they can meet their needs and be successful? Why should they find a reliable car so that they can be successful and make the places? Why should they buy a gun? You you get the picture. We, We identify these things in our life that says, if you do this, you will then be successful. So you should follow after all of these pursuits. Life is not simple. Life is a list of things that we should and should not do. And as a parent, I'm looking at this child and I'm trying to describe to her, here's all of the things that you need in your life so that you can be successful. Now let's just open that up a bit. We live in a world that advertising is all around us. And in every single one of these advertisements, the underlying thought is, This is what you need to be successful. You're missing this thing. If you add this to your life, your life will be complete. Oh, you haven't heard about this plan, this system, this this company, this car, this drug, this you fill in the blank. This is what you're missing. And if you add this to your life, you will be successful. What all of these things do is that they set us up for the fact that we need all of this stuff in our life in order for us to finally be satisfied. But here's what happens, getting back to the passage. How quickly does God shrink into the background in that worldview? How quickly does God just become another thing that we go, okay, so along with Career, car, house, job, money, this, that. You should also add God to that as well. And he turns into one other thing, not the actual thing. You can hear the Jews at this moment fall into that trap. Jesus, show us a sign that proves to us that you are more trustworthy than all of the other things that we are trusting in. If I can put this in finance terms, this is what they're saying is prove to me that you're worth jumping from our current investments over to you. Prove to me that you're better than these things over here. Because Moses, if you think about all the stuff he did, that was a pretty good investment. I mean, he fed their souls with manna in the wilderness. But look at how Jesus responds. Jesus, Jesus responds by demonstrating to them that everything that they were trusting in was from him. They thought that the person they should blame, give credit to, was Moses. Look how Jesus responds, verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus responded, says, you're trusting in Moses. But what you don't realize is that the person behind Moses, the person that you're actually trusting in Moses, was God. So you want to have this comparison of proof to us that you're better than Moses. And the thing is, Moses was but a figure that was being used by me to demonstrate my faithfulness to you. The person behind Moses was God. Back to the wilderness. Why does God speak to us through wilderness, in the wilderness? Because all of the things are stripped away. And instead of blaming our discipline, our work ethic, our career, are you fill in the blank, instead of blaming those secondary things, the only person we can blame is God. Because when you get out in, into the middle of the wilderness and you say, Lord, there's no water here. I can't find water. I can last three days without water. And God steps in and produces water from a rock. You can't say that that was Moses. You can't say that that was a stick. You can't say that that was from your hard work. The only thing you can say is, thank you God for saving me. Have you ever considered that maybe the reason why God is putting you in a wilderness type environment is stripping you of the things that you trust in, stripping away from you those things that you trust in is so that you might actually trust in him. We can have these wilderness type moments in our life now. Maybe it's not a physical wilderness, but it's a spiritual wilderness. It's an emotional wilderness. That's the only appropriate way to describe what's going on in your life. You feel like you are on the edge of death and you can't go any further. You feel like the thing that you are running after has not satisfied. You say, I am in a wilderness. Maybe the Lord put you there so that you can finally see that your only hope in life and death is him. In our world of prosperity and riches and plans, it is so easy for us to put God on the back burner and to go about fixing our life through all of these other means, we trust in our own solutions long before we start trusting in him. So what is Jesus saying in this passage? He's saying that he's the ultimate solution for our most basic needs. He is saying, listen, you have to trust me first and foremost. You know, it's easy in life to blame Ourselves, our own work ethic, our, our own hard work for the things that we have accomplished and for the blessings that we have received. It was easy for the religious leaders to think back on the, on, the converse, on the stories about manna and Go. Well, that was Moses. That's, that's why this comes up. I mean, you have to show us a sign better than Moses. But when Jesus goes, truly, truly, I say to you, Moses didn't give you that bread from heaven. Your father gave you that, that bread from heaven. That strips that away, and it can be hard for us then to look at those blessings in our life, those areas where we have been sustained, and to say, God, it's not me, it's not Moses, it's you. I had this conversation with, with my dad recently. My, my uh, dad owns a business here in town, and sitting down over breakfast, and... Um, both him and I have this entrepreneurial drive thing, want to grow things. And I was like, dad, it's, it's interesting. As a pastor, I have to admit that the Lord builds the church. As a pastor, I can't build the church. The Lord builds the church. And, but I go, but dad, in some ways, it, you could say that you, you, know, you built your own business and, and you took it from this and, 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 and got it here. And he stops me because he's obviously much older. And than me. he goes, Ryan, you're so foolish. I didn't build a business. Yeah, I worked hard. Yes, there's secondary means. I didn't build a business. God built that business. Because if he wasn't going to bless it, it wasn't going to be blessed. That's the hardest thing for driven people to admit. And there's a lot of driven people in this congregation because we've had these conversations. In fact, just this past week, I had this conversation with this guy. And and it was basically just that. And, And he He's looking at what he's trying to build, and he goes, yeah, I'm I'm working really hard, and it's paying off. And I just looked at him and said, the Lord's doing that. He's allowing that to happen. You could just tell. He's just like, oh, yeah. The hardest thing for driven people to admit is that behind everything is God. So what is Jesus saying here in this first part as he's looking at these religious leaders, these Jews who are trusting in Moses, going, you fools. It's always been me who's been providing. But I want to look at the next section. I'm going to read it and then we'll explain. This is 35 to 40. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise them up in the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and will raise him up on the last day. The question that the whole gospel is focusing on is what are we trusting in? And the answer to that is Jesus And the gospel writer, John, the gospel writer, systematically laying out for us why Jesus is the most trustworthy thing, why we can trust in him. And one of the ways that he does that is he offers us seven I am statements about Jesus. Seven statements that prove to us why Jesus is sufficient to actually trust in. We're at the first of those seven I am statements. I want to read all of them to you. This is the first one. The first one is, I am the bread of life. Second one, I am the light of the world. Third, I am the door of the sheep gate. Fourth, I am the good shepherd. Fifth, I am the resurrection and the life. Sixth, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Seventh, I am the vine. All of these I am statements are looking at Jesus from a little different angle so that when we get done with this gospel and we say, I put my hope in life and death and Jesus, we can have a full understanding of what that means. The first I am statement. I have a confession for you. This statement, this I am statement is going to be the hardest for us to understand. The warning that I wanna offer you today is that you're going to struggle to actually feel the weight of this. Why? Because we are rich men in this room. And I know we can start comparing and say, wait a second, I don't think I'm rich. I can barely buy a house in Nashville. Or I can't buy a house in Nashville. You're still rich. You still fall under the same warning that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 when it says, I tell you again, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And as Americans, we can skew this interpretation because we can go, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not rich because I don't fit into a certain class, but honestly, we're all rich in this room. Here's why. When we think about feeding ourselves, we've got options. When we think about clothing ourselves, we have options. None of us are truly at the level of being poor and destitute. And if you are, come talk to me. We have a benevolence fund for that. And that's not a joke. I'm like, we live in a world and surrounded by an economy that allows us to do practically whatever we want. Yeah, some of you might be struggling because you can't buy a house in Nashville. I feel, I feel that because home values are skyrocketing, but you have options out there where you could say, well, maybe I have to move to another town or maybe I can, my housing situation is going to be different. There's options out there. None of us live our lives from a state of saying, I can't do this. I have no other options. But when Jesus says that I am the bread of life, what he is bringing us to is that point of I have no other options. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven because in order for us to look at Jesus, what we have to look at him as is I have no other options. Frankly, our prosperity blinds us to our need for Christ. We have so many other options that we can apply first to fix the problems of this world. Again, the beauty of the wilderness is that all of that is stripped away. Uh, I, I say this phrase far too often, but I have to say it in this way because I can't. Um, I, I can't uh, point to the source. I was listening to this podcast once, and I don't know what podcast it was because I listened to a lot of them, and it, I, I believe it was a psychologist started to riff on the um, conversation of boredom. I, f- I have. I feel like I've heard maybe it's just because I'm a dad of junior hires ish now of, like the fear of being bored. I fear being bored. And I'm not bored enough in my life. And the problem with me not being bored enough in my life is that I have things around me to distract me from all of the painful aspects of life. But being bored actually is a gift. The reason that being bored is a gift is because it allows us to focus on and to deal with those things that we actually need to deal with. What was being described in this podcast was that at the, at the rate that boredom was diminishing, our struggles with mental health were rising. Because every time somebody feels a pain point in their life, every time somebody struggles against something, they can reach for a device that numbs that, that distracts that. I, I, this is me. I would much rather, if I'm, if I'm bored watching a show, which is crazy, I can reach for my phone and start scrolling. If I struggle, if I'm struggling with something in my life, I have some other thing out there that can numb me and distract me from that pain point. We don't allow ourselves to sit and deal with the struggles that we have. Why? Because we're rich men. Because we have other options to distract us, to satisfy us. Where Jesus needs to bring us is to the point where we say, I have no other Options. You are the bread of life. I can't fill that with any other thing. I can't try to satisfy that with any other bread or any other system. You are the bread of life and I need you and you alone. During the last few months of, of World War II, there was a, I think it was a battleship or destroyer that was sent on a special mission. And it was to deliver one of the atomic bombs to a forward air base. And on the way back, because it was such a special um, mission, because it was a classified mission, they didn't follow their normal routes and they didn't have their normal safety procedures. Normally when a destroyer went out, there would be two submarines on either side of it to protect it from enemy submarines. Well, this battleship, the USS Indianapolis, did not have that. In fact, it, was not, it did not use its normal radio frequencies to describe to people where it was going. And so one night, a Japanese submarine found this boat and torpedoed it and sunk it very quickly so quickly that they really couldn't give off an appropriate range of, we've been hit, we're going down. And so what happened was there were hundreds and hundreds of sailors floating into the ocean and they floated in the ocean for four days, actually some up to five days because by the time that it took them to uh, actually find this shipwreck, it took them 24 hours to get all the people out of the water. Imagine floating in salt water for four days. This is, this is the story that Jaws talks about where there's sharks all around and, and many, many individuals were, were eaten by sharks during that time. But imagine floating in salt water for four days. Hunger isn't the issue. It's thirst. And imagine floating in the very thing that you want, water. But you can't drink the water that you're floating in because the water that you're floating in is actually poisonous. So your brain tells you if you drink this thing that you're floating in, so it's right here, if you drink this thing, your thirst will be satisfied. Your body says if you drink this thing, you will die because the more salt water you ingest, the more water that you need. And so the accounts that were told of this, there were some guys who just broke, mentally broke and said, I give up. And they drank themselves to death of the water that they so desperately needed. That's what happens in our life. We're surrounded by all of these external realities to say this will satisfy us. We lie to ourselves, again, as rich men and say, if I just have more money, that will satisfy us. If I just have a bigger house, that will satisfy us. If I just have a better marriage, that will satisfy us. If I just have a, you fill in your blank, that thing you're trusting in, that will satisfy. And it looks on the outset like it will satisfy. And then it kills you. Those sailors were brought to a very desperate place that says what you actually need is true, clean, undefiled Water. Jesus is our true water, is our true bread. What does that mean? It means that he is never lacking in anything. It means that he is continually faithful. It means that he is always present. It means that we can't journey away from him. When we get him, we have him. There's no moment when we can wander off because he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. It means that he's never going to stop giving us what we need until, to go back to the man of reference, we're in the promised land until we're in heaven. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall never hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst, that stands opposed to every other thing on this earth that we trust in. Because every other thing that we trust in is just salt water that will actually kill us. I mean, I love verse 37 here. When it goes, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, you could Read it this way, whoever comes to me, I will surely keep and preserve. I want to talk to the men for a moment, because you guys are on my heart this week. You know, these lists of things that we just try to keep up, this rat race that we're all on to try to prove to ourselves and to the people around us that we're good enough. Guys, we, we get sucked into this vortex more than any other people. Because we think that in order for us to be good men, in order for us to be satisfied, in order for us to be accomplished in life, we have to keep doing those things that we have been doing. And we live in fear because the thing that we fear the most is failure, right? Like as Brene Brown says in The Gift of Imperfection, we fear falling off our white horses and we almost don't allow ourselves to fall off our white horses. So we just have to live in this perpetual state of I can't give up, I just have to keep going. Imagine what we just read from Christ. Christ is different than that. It's not this keep applying, keep doing, keep working, even keep being faithful. What Christ says is, no, when you have me, you have me. You are never going to lose me. Imagine, this is, you can stop working. You can admit where you're weak because admitting where you're weak points to the fact that Jesus is strong. That you can walk in and say, I have messed up. I am struggling. I need to repent of these things and know that you're Life in Christ is not going to change. You can actually rest. This has always been God's will for us. This rat race that we're on of trying to satisfy our life by our own hands, never the point. This this lie that we believe, if we can just keep being faithful and faithful, we can be good, that was never God's will. That's what it says here. I mean, look, look what it says in 40. This is the will, the, the will of trusting in Jesus as a bread of life alone. This is the will of the Father, that anyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Living in the state of rest and completion has always been God's desire for humanity. Just, just turn to one place before we close. Hebrews 10. And just, actually just, just sit back and hear this. This is the writer of Hebrews, whoever he is, describing for us why we can trust in Christ. It says this in 10.1, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are, that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Interpretation, you can try to go be like Moses and you can try to do those things, it will never make you perfect. Would I say where we were starting? We can never be faithful enough. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings I have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And when he said above, you have neither desired, think will for a moment, it's the same word, nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, he then added, Behold, I have come to do what God desired to do God's will. He does away with the first. He does away with the list. He does away with the sacrifices. He does away with the doing in order to establish the second. And by that will, by that desire, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Maybe what you need to hear this morning, maybe what you need to hear out of the entire gospel of John is that when Jesus comes he comes so that we can stop trying and start resting he comes so that we can stop trying to satisfy our souls by pursuing whatever these things we're doing over here he comes so that you can look in the mirror and go I messed up big time I may have made the decision that I thought that I would never make. I may have looked in the mirror and said how, how insufficient I am, how incomplete I am, and yet we can go, but Christ is sufficient. He came so that we can look in the mirror and go, yeah, I'm not enough, but Jesus is. I pray, dear saints, as you live your life, you can truly see Jesus as the bread of life. That as you're looking to satisfy your, your, your life and your world, you don't look to those things that you can do, but you can look to those things that you have received by grace through faith and believe that Christ is enough. As we turn towards communion this morning, I mean, we get to take the bread of life. We get to, to, to take these physical food elements to remind us that the life that we need and the death that was required is found in him. If you're here this morning and you are a believer, we would encourage you to take this meal with us. This is a family meal. But if, if you're, if you've yet to believe in Christ, if you've yet to place your faith in him, maybe you're on the outskirts looking into this church thing and wondering, but I just can't give up yet. Maybe you still think, nope, I'm going to believe the lie that one more thing can satisfy me. Why don't I try this other thing over here? Then maybe I'll come to... If you're there, first, we're excited and encouraged that you're here. But I to ask that you just let this meal pass you by because it's a family meal. We don't take it to save us. We don't take it to renew anything inside of us, you know, level up again. We take it so that we can be reminded that it's his life and death and burial and resurrection that we trust in and not the works of our own hands. Let's pray and we can take this together. Lord, thank you that you gave us what we could never accomplish on our own. Lord, for for everyone here, I, I, I just, I, as, as I'm thinking of the people that are present, the stories, the conversations, the these lives, I, I just, I, I see how we are a congregation that's filled with driven people and driven people I love to be around because it it inspires me to try harder and to do more and yet it's so easy for us to trust in our drive and our accomplishments in our hands and not to trust in you. Lord, for those individuals, men and women alike, help us to stop trying to satisfy our lives by what we do and look to you. Lord, for those in the room that are struggling because they fear whether they've done enough, maybe they know their inconsistencies, they know their insufficiencies, they know that they, they are weak and needy, Lord, Lord, remind them, fill up their souls with the knowledge that you are the bread of life and we need nothing else. That when we have you, we will never hunger, we will never thirst, and that our ultimate need, reconciliation with the Father, has been made complete, that it is finished. Lord, as we take this table together, well up inside of us, a overwhelming love, love, and appreciation for your Son. In your Son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.